Welcome back to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you? Are you asking us? Yeah. Let's start with Katie. Okay, Katie, how you doing? I am here. Here. No, I'm really, I'm really fine. I okay. Just, You've been in a car all day. I have been in a car all day. And we're day. recording later on Sunday afternoons than usual because we had to accommodate Katie's late arrival from her beach trip. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Which was part business, part pleasure. Yes. Last minute. Yeah. Ellison made the state track meet. So we. Hey, way to go. That's off, awesome. Took awesome. off on down and. Yep. They did good. The girls got fourth in the state. The, that, the team hey, did. So. I love that. They did good. That's good. Well, good for them. And they're pretty young. Are they a pretty young little yeah. relay team? It's a pretty, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, her relay team, they didn't get, they didn't place that high. But the, the yeah, they're very young. The whole team in yeah. and of itself is pretty young. Yeah. So they'll yeah. be, they'll be going back more and more. Oh, yeah. We hope so. Good deal. All right. Well, my name is Kelly Turner and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. All right. So here we are. True Crime on Easy Street. Scott is in the big chair today. Yep. Before we get started, is there anything else I'm missing? Do we need to, are we just going to jump in this week? And get do we, it, get do we want to tell everybody how you and I were contemplating standing today instead of sitting, but we I both mean, you chickened didn't... out, or basically I chickened out and you said, if, if I didn't do it, you weren't going to do it either. Yeah. I was sometimes I get tired of sitting, so I was going to try standing, but I think I'm already fidgety already, <laughs> in the chair, yeah. but I think I like sitting better. He's moving gives, around. I don't have to remember to stay balanced that way. If I just stand, I'm afraid I'll tip over balanced. in mid-podcast. Yeah, we would. We would. <laughs> and we I have not had that. anything to drink today. Oh, really? I stayed home and pressure washed my deck, played with the dogs, watched a movie on television. What'd you watch? What'd you watch? I watched Airplane. Oh, that's so funny. And then Hot that's, Shots. That's a good one. Hot Shots. I love that. Oh my gosh, stuff. love that. Yeah. I love anything that's going to make fun of Top Top Gun. Yeah, not a Tom Cruise fan. <laughs> Well, you would love Hot Shots. You've seen it before. I, I have seen it. Yeah. And, and I, it's still as funny as you remember it. Yeah. And I know that he's just, I don't know what you would call him, but I love Charlie Sheen. Yeah. And the common denominator <laughs> in both of those movies, Lloyd Bridges. The oh, fantastic okay. deadpan comedy of Lloyd Bridges <laughs> in both of those. And so that's why after I saw Airplane, I thought, what else is Lloyd Bridges in? Airplane. I mean, uh, uh, Hot Shots. Hot Shots. It's oh. great. So I watched both. All right. Well, that sounds like fun. We're going to go home and do that tonight yeah. after right. we're after we're finished. But without further ado, we have a case that Scott is going to cover for us. Are you going to give us some sort of intro or? Uh-huh. All right. Well, I'm going to just let you take it away. Okay. So we were just talking about movies and you guys love movies. We all do. Do you love crime movies? You must or we wouldn't be here today doing this true crime podcast. I do love crime movies. Yeah. Yes. So I know I'm older than both of you put together, but I have watched a lot of movies in my life. Uh, one of my favorite categories is uh, any movie that's based on actual events. A lot of times, those are my favorites. And a lot of those movies have the spinning newspaper montage. You guys know what I'm talking about? I love that. The black screen yes. and the newspaper spins and boom, there's the headline. The spinning newspaper was a quick, inexpensive trick of Hollywood storytelling. A transition device used to move the narrative along or show the passage of time or to reveal the impact of events already witnessed in the film. Just a few of my favorite movies. We've already mentioned one. Uh, Batman from 89 with Michael uh, Keaton is one of those with a spinning newspaper. Airplane that I just mentioned. And another is uh, they use magazine covers instead of newspapers in the Bill Murray movie Stripes. And they do it at the very end to kind of supply the viewer with an ending of what happens to everybody after their successful overseas uh, 
Secret Mission. That is another great movie. Absolutely. So in Stripes, that newspaper trick uh, with magazine covers, like I mentioned, was used to again show the passage of time and the impact of events. Other movies, uh, other films in which moviegoers could commonly see this sort of narrative device include just about anything set in the world of crime. Which brings us this little intro of ours full circle. We're back to being a true crime podcast now. Uh, some of the movies that I think of immediately when I think of the newspaper spinning montage in a crime film, The Sting, The Godfather, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I also watched this morning, and The Shawshank Redemption. That's just a few, but they've all got that newspaper, that spinning newspaper that helps tell the story. It was a really easy way to move the story along in Hollywood, and it still is. It's used in a lot of films. So the story we're going to talk about today was also the subject of a popular film, which included no spinning newspaper montage, but the story of Bonnie and Clyde was by and large told through actual newspapers back in the day when these events were happening, which got me thinking about the newspaper thing, which is why we had the long introduction. Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to stretch this into two episodes, so bear with me. You're doing a great Spoiler job. alert. Yeah, you're doing a great job. <clears throat> so here we are today to tell the story of Bonnie and Clyde. And you can't talk about Bonnie and Clyde without talking about the true crime movie, that movie itself from 1967. And it tells at least one version of the story. Obviously, we all know the basic outline of the story of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yes. So let's imagine that that tragedy ended differently with both of them living. And now the lovely pair is riding in a horse-drawn carriage headed for a romantic weekend at a local Airbnb on Weiss Lake and then is suddenly sideswiped by a flat avocado-colored Pontiac Aztec driven by Walter fucking White. What? That's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Good Lord. More or less. Not exactly, but it's a love story with a tragic comedy, I mean, a tragic crime element and ending. And crystal meth? Well, bank robbing. (laughs) I said it was close. (laughs) Stick around, I'm going to explain, I promise. Okay, all right, yeah, sure. So I went back and watched that Bonnie and Clyde film from 67 on Friday night. I was certain that there was going to be a spinning newspaper, but there never was. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Who's in that? Uh, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Oh, too great. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, And I'm glad I went back and watched it again just to clear up the spinning newspaper confusion that I had. But newspapers, again, like I said earlier, do figure prominently in this story. Remember, it was 1933, the middle of the Great Depression. uh, Millions of Americans were standing in bread lines, living in tent cities set up in former cotton fields that were empty because of the boll weevil and the dust blowing in from the West. Families all around the country lost their homes and had to pack up and motor around the country looking for work. Read The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck or cheat like I did and watch the movie. I have done both. With Henry Fonda. Yeah. Yeah. And those millions of families had lost their homes to the banks. And Bonnie and Clyde and a laundry list of other gangsters and petty criminals of the time were robbing banks and shooting the law officers who chased after them. And that sort of criminal activity was just fine with a wide swath of the American people at the time. Oh, yeah. I could, I could easily see that. As Katie has pointed out many times on this podcast, the world has always been burning. Very, very true. <laughs> yeah. We've seen familiar attitudes during other bleak eras of American history, including quite recently. Specifically in the fall of 1967, the younger generation viewed Arthur Penn's vision for his film, he was the director, about a couple of 1930s era gangsters as an echo of their screams about the political and social and economic injustice 
they perceived to be overrunning their country. In the late 1960s, the film Bonnie and Clyde was a chance for the younger generation to watch the establishment take one on the chin, so to speak, without having to resort to open revolution on their college campuses. In the minds of many young moviegoers, they're clapping and cheering at the screen while they watched this extremely violent film and saw banks robbed and cops shot down in cold blood was a righteous response to the corruption at the hands of the establishment, i.e. their parents, the previous generation. Film historians will tell you that Bonnie and Clyde was the film that opened the floodgates on violence in American cinema. But as Kelly correctly reminds me on occasion, this is not a film history class. So let's get to our true crime story. Mm -hmm. Even though there's not a spinning newspaper in Bonnie and Clyde, there's a newspaper aspect of the film. For one example, uh, at one point in the story, Bonnie sent in the U.S. mail a poem that she had written and newspapers printed and ran all over the country. And Katie is about to read part of that now. You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to those write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They'll hate all the law, the stool pigeon spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride, that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the law fooled around, kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell. Till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll see a few of them in hell. Someday they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To a few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. So that poem has several stanzas that we left out for brevity's sake, but Bonnie wrote that rhyme herself with excellent grammar. Bonnie was a sharp student, as a teenager one of the smartest in her class, at Cement City High School in Dallas. She once won the citywide spelling bee. No kidding. She was always very close to her mother, though as a young child, often causing her fits. Bonnie and her cousin used to steal potatoes from their grandmother's pantry and cook them on a small fire they would secretly build behind the house. Once, the fire got away from them and burned down grandma's backyard privacy fence. So she was into trouble as a Mm. kid. I guess it was better than grandma's house. Yeah. Bonnie got married six days before her 16th birthday to her first love, a petty thief who soon wound up incarcerated. Bonnie had that itch that some people get at that young age. She wanted more to be famous and rich and respected. And while her husband was serving time in a Texas prison, Bonnie met Clyde at the house of a friend in January of 1930. When 20-year-old Clyde Barrow promised her the moon, 19-year-old Bonnie Parker looked past his previous run-ins with the law and said she'd take the offer. So, Bonnie had a type. Yes, Mm -hmm. apparently she did. (laughs) She liked a bad boy. Yes. Okay. So, after she bumped into Clyde at that house, the duo spent the rest of their days, not always together, but completely infatuated from each other for the rest of their lives. Bonnie never again took off her wedding ring, but she never saw her husband again. Oh, wow. Oh, so they were never married. No. Well, I didn't know that. I just learned something new. It was two years later, in February of 1932, when Clyde and Bonnie were next reunited. After a two-year stint in prison, Clyde showed up at Bonnie's mother's house, where she was living. Clyde was on crutches that night, because one week before the unexpected pardon that had set him free, Clyde had hired another inmate to grab an axe and chop off two of his toes in order to get out of day labor at the prison farm where he was being held. 
That is dedicated. It's one way to do it. It's one way to not have to go pick cotton, I guess. When Bonnie's mother told Clyde, as he stood there on his crutches that night, that he would have to settle down and get a job if he was going to date her daughter, Clyde grinned, kissed Bonnie's cheek, and proclaimed that no decent girl would ever want him. To that remark, Bonnie just giggled and kissed him right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, yeah, she definitely had a type. Mm -hmm. By the time Clyde had returned to Bonnie after his two-year prison stay, she was a 21-year-old young lady, but still only a tiny thing, at 4'10", about 90 pounds. Her eyes were the color of a clear blue day, her mother said, and her hair was strawberry blonde, but she liked to dye it red. She wore a size 3 shoe. Wow, that is a a small foot, a toddler foot. Mm -hmm. Bonnie was living at home and longing for adulthood to finally come and take her away, and so she walked out the door that night with the second and final, and limping on crutches, love of her life. She should have listened to mom. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let me say that, girls out there. <laughs> I'm a mother. Listen to your mother. Listen to your mom. Bonnie loved to read the Hollywood tabloids that were so popular at the time. The stories of the silver screen and exotic homes and fancy cars and sensational stardom. She even mailed off a few glamour shots, hoping to be discovered, to become the next Jean Harlow, Myrna Loy, or Clara Bow. Speaking of Hollywood stars, and we mentioned it already, Clyde looked absolutely nothing like Warren Beatty, the actor who played him in the 1967 film. So if Clyde was no Warren Beatty in appearance, and whoever has been in the history of Hollywood except for Warren Beatty. I was going to say, who, who yeah, does look right. like Warren Beatty? So what was Clyde's basic description? According to Clyde's sister, By age 16, he was not a ladies' man, but, quote, an ordinary young boy with more good looks and personality than the average, and everybody who knew him liked him. Clyde's older sister by five years, Nell, wrote that description of her little brother in her book Fugitives, which was published in 1937, three years after his death. According to local law enforcement of the day and based on eyewitness testimony from the many crime scenes where he later presented himself, Clyde was five foot six, about 135 pounds. He had been born in Texas a year and a half before Bonnie, who was also born in Texas. Clyde had always admired his older brother, Buck, who was a petty thief himself. But Buck never quite had the drive for a true life of crime that Clyde would show in the two years to come. Not exactly. And besides, even when older brother Buck was in the room, Clyde was always the man in charge of said room. Back when they were kids, Buck had once taken Clyde along to steal some chickens, which got both of them hauled into the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. His sister Nell always insisted that Clyde was not with his older brother the day those chickens were taken, but still that legend persists in Bonnie and Clyde folklore. Whether or not that particular story is the whole clucking truth, a year later at age 17, it is well established by Clyde's sister that he rented a car for an afternoon and then decided to keep it an extra day without informing the rental agency, otherwise known then as now as car theft. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
When the cops tracked him down, Clyde, for the first time, did what would become a natural reaction whenever the long arm of the law reached out for him. He made a run for it. Mm, did he get away? He was soon hauled in. He did not. And that incident was the one that got him in front of a judge for the first time. And back in those days, for a first offense, it was customary, in Texas at least, to have the parents bring the boy in and have him subjected to a fatherly dressing down from the bench. Then the judge would let the parents impose their own punishment in return for a promise that their boy would never return to his courtroom. Now, sometimes that judicial tactic worked. It did not work for Clyde Barrow, as we know. I'm gonna say, I don't think it would have worked for his brother either. I mean, they were Definitely both. not. <laughs> Another problem that Clyde soon realized, speaking of his brother, was that he would never be able to run from what was his last name, Barrow, because of his older brother. Buck was already in trouble with the law for petty crimes, and the local cops often hauled Clyde in too, if only on suspicion. And so the seed of Clyde's resentfulness and distrust of the law was planted by that police tactic. And by the time Clyde was 21, he had been sentenced to 14 years in prison for yet another car theft. That was his favorite thing to do. It was easy and fun in his mind. He obviously wasn't very good at it. Not good enough. (laughs) But he's learning. Before too long, Bonnie, who Clyde had listed as his wife on the forms he had filled out upon entering the prison, brought him a handgun, which he promptly used to escape. She brought him a handgun to the prison? Yeah, so... She's got her type, like you guys said. But That was during the two-year period between when they met and when Clyde limped back to the house to get her for the second time. So she's, she's helping him while he's incarcerated, but he ends up arrested again, and that's when he does the two-year stint for car theft. And he's gone until 32, and then he comes and gets Bonnie, and they hit the road. How'd you get a gun in there? He knew where one was, and he told her how to go get it, and she went and got it and slipped it into... Uh, the front of her dress between she put on two belts she put on a belt inside her dress and another belt on the outside it created some sort of pocket in her blouse and she just slipped it down in that pocket and was able to I don't know maybe she held a loaf of bread in front of her to hide the outline of the gun they didn't check. You think well they probably checked the bread for us for a saw security has changed a quite lot. a bit and maybe because of this possibly yeah So back to that jailbreak from uh, March of 1930, Clyde didn't last long on the run, like we said, and he soon found himself in a Texas state penitentiary, this one called Eastham Farm, where manual labor was part of the rehabilitation process and unspeakable funny business among male inmates in the showers was a common occurrence. Oh, no. Not a lot of detail here, but... And he's small. He's a little guy. According to one story, a fellow inmate tried to take advantage of Clyde one time too many and was later found dead. His head caved in by a lead pipe. Ooh. Oh, wow. Another inmate in the prison who was already serving a life sentence for murder took the rap for that crime. But it is widely believed that for whatever reason, that lifer's gesture was a favor to his friend Clyde Barrow, who had actually swung that lead pipe. One inmate who watched what happened that night at Easton Prison said that he saw Clyde Barrow turn from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake right before his eyes. Hmm. Paroled in February of 1932 after serving only two years of that 14-year stint, Clyde returned to Dallas to that previously mentioned reunion with Bonnie at her mother's house. When he limped out the doors of Easton Farm, Clyde promised himself that one way or another, he was never going back to prison. In less than a month, after he and Bonnie were reunited, he had committed his first gas station robbery. He and an accomplice, another former inmate named Raymond Hamilton, And I'm going to be scant with names in this story, but hold on to that one. Raymond Hamilton. 
The pair had made off with a few dollars, but they were soon identified from their mugshots. Remember, they had both just got out of prison. The next month, April of 1932, Clyde and Raymond were attempting to hold up a grocery store when a pistol fired by accident and left the proprietor dead on the floor. The store owner's wife saw the whole thing and later identified Clyde as one of the holdup men. According to some accounts, Clyde briefly toyed with the idea of turning himself in and taking his chances with the law. After all, it had been Raymond Hamilton's gun that fired and ricocheted off the wall of the safe and killed the store owner. And so the Barrow gang had killed for the first time. And just to explain, there is a revolving door of petty criminals who enter and exit the Barrow gang as this story goes along. The bench players change in and out throughout the story. Some of them we will mention by name, some of them not. Ultimately, Clyde decided that he did not want to take a chance on ending up in the electric chair for his part in the store owner's death, especially since he was still on parole. And besides, he already despised the law and did not trust them. So Clyde laid low until Bonnie got out of jail on a separate robbery charge. She was ultimately released because of a lack of evidence to convict. And the two young lovers were together again, this time until the bitter end. Right then and there, Clyde decided he could be a big man in the world of crime as long as he had guns and the mobility that a stolen car could bring him. Add to Clyde's ego the fact that he now had a good-looking woman at his side who was willing to follow him anywhere, and the young outlaw was prepared to be more ruthless and cunning than ever before. He would do whatever it took to survive and avoid a possible trip to the electric chair. On July the 16th, 1932, Bonnie and Clyde and Raymond Hamilton robbed a bookkeeper at an ice company of nearly $1,000. That's about twenty-two grand today. Eleven days later, the trio left the manager of the First State Bank in Willis, Texas, and one of his cashiers locked in the bank vault in the process making off with $3,000. According to former Dallas County Sheriff's Deputy Ted Hinton, in his 1979 book Ambush, The Real Story of Bonnie and Clyde, the townspeople in Willis, Texas had to dig a hole in the wall of the bank building to release the manager and cashier from the vault. Wow. So they were stuck, stuck. Big time. Descriptions from eyewitnesses match, though. Clyde and Raymond had gone inside to commit both of those robberies, the grocery store and the bank, while Bonnie waited in the getaway car. That was the story. After a couple of weeks of hiding out in the hills of Oklahoma while the heat died down, and I read that and thought, there are hills in Oklahoma? I learned something new. Anyway, the trio, uh, they, they, the heat was off, so a few weeks later, they barged into a roadside dance hall near Stringtown, Oklahoma. When they took a break to dug out to the car to sip a little moonshine, that would be Raymond and Bonnie because Clyde did not drink. The trio drew the attention of a pair of local deputies who ambled over to the car to investigate. Remember, it's prohibition. Alcohol is illegal. Okay. Uh-oh. For trying to do their duty that night, both of those deputies went down in a hail of gunfire. One of them died from his injuries and became the second victim of the Barrow Gang. Mm. Any and all thoughts about changing their ways or giving themselves up to the authorities was completely gone now. Every cop in Oklahoma was on the lookout for the Barrow Gang, and the chances were that any of those lawmen would come shooting rather than asking questions. As we have just indicated, the Barrow Gang was getting bolder by the day, but Bonnie and Clyde were still mama's babies, in in a sense, and both liked to head back home to the Dallas area on occasion, 
and visit their families in between robberies and car chases and shootings. And after the shooting at the dance hall, for whatever reason, the word on the street was that the gang had stolen a series of cars and were headed back home for the Dallas area. Unfortunately for all the cops driving around looking for them or standing around at roadblocks waiting and hoping that the three of them would try and pass through, Raymond and Bonnie and Clyde, and Clyde in particular, seemed to know just about every back road in Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, and elsewhere. Elsewhere as in New Mexico, where the Barrow Gang was next spotted while paying an unannounced visit to Bonnie's aunt in Carlsbad. While there, Clyde did something he occasionally resorted to during his two-year crime spree when he had no other viable means of escaping from his predicament. He kidnapped a deputy sheriff, shoved him into the back of the car, and drove straight through from New Mexico to Texas. It would turn out to be a ride that the sheriff's deputy would never forget. Oh yeah, I bet. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services. You know, they're located right here in Cherokee County. And I called Alan myself just a few weeks ago, and he and his crew came out to my house, pressure washed the whole thing. It looks brand new. Well, as brand new as my house can possibly look after 25 years. But all I did was call Alan at 256-706-7964. He and the guys showed up and cleaned up everything. It looked fantastic. The pollen has fallen a little bit since then. So if you haven't done this already, now's the perfect time to call Alan and A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964 and let them do for you what they've already done for me. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Wass Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds, and they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post-Herald is a great way to do that. The Post-Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post-Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post-Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. We're proud to have another show sponsor, Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill. Faraway is a small, family-owned business with small-town values located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. But they can do big things for you. Call Faraway for anything you want done to a tree, or a lot of them. You want your trees removed? Call Faraway. You want your trees cut up and milled into lumber or ground into mulch? Call Faraway. Faraway is licensed and insured and can handle any job, big or small, from tree trimming to stump grinding and everything in between. So call Faraway 
tree service and sawmill today at 256-393-5398. Thank you to all of our sponsors. And now back to our show. Okay, so when we left off, Clyde and Bonnie had just fled her aunt's house in New Mexico with a kidnapped sheriff's deputy in the backseat of their latest stolen automobile, which was usually a Ford V8 sedan. Anytime Clyde could find one, that was his favorite car to steal. In fact, it appears that Clyde once wrote a letter to Henry Ford himself, bragging about all of the escapes he had made in Mr. Ford's top-of-the-line automobile. Dear Sir, the handwritten letter says in part, While I have still got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. Yours truly, Clyde Champion Barrow. <laughs> That's hilarious. Today, that letter is in the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. I bet it is, yeah. Now, no one has ever been able to confirm for certain that that letter was actually written by Clyde Barrow, whose actual middle name was Chestnut, not Champion, but that's another story, and I'm not even going there. Oh, okay. The Detroit Free Press ran a story about that letter written to Henry Ford uh, back in February of 2019, and I found the article. Uh, the reporter interviewed the man who was the archives manager at Ford at the time. He said no one had ever verified the handwriting, but he believed the letter to be genuine. And why wouldn't he? He's the Henry Ford archivist. I was about to say, he's, he's not going to turn around. Poo-poo that piece it, of yeah. Americana. Uh, we think it's crap, but we got it framed up in here yeah. anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we're way off the intended path, as usual, <laughs> when I'm in the big chair. Let's get back to our kidnapped New Mexico sheriff's deputy. And I'm sorry for stringing everyone along about that guy, because there's not a lot of drama there, really. They dumped him out of the road in San Antonio and let him go. Clyde and Bonnie would do that uh, on occasion, just for shits and giggles, I guess. I bet he was just glad to be out of that trunk. What a story and, to tell. Holy cow. Alerted to the possible presence of the Barrow Gang in the San Antonio area, Law enforcement set up a roadblock at a bridge over the Colorado River that was just about the only place to cross while driving in the direction that Clyde was last reported to be headed in. And sure enough, a Ford V8, which at that time was the fastest car on the road, all 85 horsepower of it, suddenly spun out of line while waiting to pass through the roadblock, fired off a few shots in the air, and disappeared into the darkness. That's not a good way to be... Um on the down low. Like, Incognito. <laughs> uh, inconspicuous. Yeah. Any any of those things. Yeah, I mean, but they, just, they just, you know, quietly. I mean, why'd they have to spin out and fire a couple? I don't know. Clyde liked to drive. <laughs> Gosh. With yet another narrow escape under their belts, the legend of Bonnie and Clyde continued to grow in the eyes of the area news media. They were still a regional story so far. They weren't national news yet. And this persisted all through the hot summer months of 1932. And then to October the 11th, 1932. While ordering bologna and cheese sandwiches from a roadside deli in Hillsboro, Texas, near Dallas. Remember, Bonnie and Clyde liked to go home every once in a while. And they didn't think twice about that for whatever reason. They decided to rob the shopkeeper, whom you would think they might have expected to have a butcher knife nearby. Okay. Or not. When the man behind the counter decided he wasn't fond of looking down the barrel of the pistol Clyde had just stuck in his face, he took a swing with that butcher knife, and Clyde made him pay for it with his life and the $28 in the cash register. Oh, gosh. $28. And the Barrow Gang had killed victim number three, and the legend of Bonnie and Clyde spread 
and grew a little more. Why Why was he just... That's what they did. I mean, he just wanted to rob him. That's what he does. Yeah, I guess so. Bonnie and Clyde robbed a few more banks over the next several weeks while driving through Oklahoma and Missouri, all while eluding the authorities. One light note. One of their attempted robberies was at a small town bank that had shut down four days earlier and did not contain a single dime. The old man caretaker of the soon-to-be-abandoned building laughed as Clyde ran out the door with his empty hands, and he and Bonnie sped away in their latest stolen vehicle. By the first week of December of 1932, it was time for Clyde to steal yet another car. When he tried to make off with a parked Ford V8 in Temple, Texas, the man who owned it ran out of his house to try and stop the theft. The bullet Clyde put in his head made him the Barrow Gang's fourth victim. Things are getting out of hand. Yeah. Stick around. In early 1933, local law enforcement in Texas, under the direction of newly elected Dallas County Sheriff Smoot Schmidt. Not really germane to the story. I just wanted to say Smoot Schmidt. What a On this name. podcast. Yeah. Um, anyway, law enforcement decided to lean on Bonnie's sister for possible information about their whereabouts. On January the 6th of 1933, officers were staking out Bonnie's sister's house when they saw a car approach slowly around midnight. A male who turned out to be Clyde got out of the car and began walking slowly towards the house. When the officers shouted halt, as they were legally required to do before opening fire at the time, Clyde started blasting buckshot into the windows, walking backwards towards the car as he fired. The first deputy who stepped in front of the gun dropped dead on the front porch as his fellow officers returned fire, and Bonnie began blasting away with a pistol from the driver's seat of the vehicle. That dead deputy became Barrow Gang victim number five. And do I even have to say it at this point? Of course, they got away. Wow. But none of the other deputies died? Just the one that night. Two months later, in March of 1933, Clyde's older brother, Buck, got out of jail after his own 17-month stint for burglary and decided his best post-prison career opportunity was to join the family business. His wife, Blanche, was not too hot about that career decision, but she loved her man, Buck, so she grudgingly went along to a meeting between the brothers in Joplin, Missouri, in early April. It was around dusk on April the 13th, 1933, when officers in Joplin approached a two-story stone bungalow, double garage on the bottom floor, apartment on the top. Neighbors had reported seeing some suspicious activity in and around the rented apartment for a few days, and apparently one night as well, uh, whoever lived upstairs at the time got a little noisy and rowdy while playing poker. So two cars filled with cops drove out to investigate. When the officers identified themselves through the door at the top of the stairs, everyone in the apartment, except for Blanche, because remember, she wasn't so keen on living a life of crime, everyone else started firing their weapons through the windows. Clyde and Buck ran down the interior stairs, kicked open the garage doors, and started firing away with a pair of heavy-duty Browning automatic rifles. That's a 16-pound military-style gas-powered 30 caliber weapon that came with a 20-round clip and could fire 500 rounds per minute when set to fully automatic. So Clyde and Buck were each capable of putting eight holes per second in whatever they were aiming at. And once again, they were aiming at police officers. And once again, the Barrow Gang got away pretty much unscathed. At one point, Bonnie shouted from upstairs, 
Pour it on him, Clyde. We're coming down. Blanche had run screaming down the street as all hell was breaking loose in the driveway of the bungalow. After speeding away from the scene that night, the rest of the Barrow gang ran her down two blocks away and dragged her into the car. According to the story, she still had a deck of cards in one hand and her little dog in the other. I'm not leaving without the dog either. The final tally after the gunfight, two more dead lawmen, murders number six and seven for the Barrow gang, and yet another unbelievable tale of escape for Bonnie to write about in her poems and for reporters all around the nation to embellish in their newspapers. Not that this particular escape required any embellishment at all. Oh, and one other thing. Remember the Barrow gang hauled off in a hurry when the cops got there. Blanche left behind her purse with her wedding license and Buck's parole papers. Bonnie had left her favorite meal, red beans and cabbage, warming on the stove. And there were two rolls of undeveloped film lying on a small table in the living room. As I often tell Katie when I have explained something antiquated that she's never heard of, I will tell you all about that later. Oh, yes, I can't wait. <laughs> anyway, just about every photo you have ever seen of Bonnie and Clyde was contained on those two rolls of film. Okay, that's cool. We'll close up today with just a bit of information about those images. Hop online and Google Bonnie and Clyde photos and you can see them for yourself. I'm going to do that when we finish recording. There was one of Clyde. Dapperly dressed as always, he was very, very specific. He had his suits pressed and laundered, and he would circle around two days later and come back and get his clothing while they were on the run. Wow. Wow. Well, we can't compromise our suits dropping off our dry cleaning. That's why they had to keep robbing banks. They needed money for dry cleaning. So does he think he's like this, you know, 1920s gangster? That's exactly what he thinks. Yeah, he's he's Machine Gun Kelly. It's the 30s when all this is happening. The, 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 The... that era of crime is the 30s. That's Machine Gun Kelly and Babyface Nelson and Ma Barker and her gang. Wow. And Al Capone. Al Capone was 31. But yeah, everybody's living that dream. Good gracious. Putting it to the man. Well, and we will put some of these photos that we can find. Yeah, on. sure. We'll put them on our Instagram page yes. mm-hmm. for you yeah. to see. So there's, there's this one shot of uh, Clyde dressed to the nines, holding his favorite weapons. There's another of Bonnie with one leg on the bumper of their stolen vehicle and a pistol in the belt of her dress. Another photo showed Bonnie, who also dressed very elegantly, especially for a gun mall. That was what the female associate of a gangster was called in the newspaper press of the day, okay. I learned. Learned uh, something new? Yeah. She's holding a shotgun on Clyde. That's, you'll see that one when you Google Bonnie and Clyde photos. A couple more featured Bonnie and Clyde kissing or embracing. So after the shootout in Joplin, Missouri, Bonnie and Clyde were on the run with Buck and Blanche in tow. But now there are photos of Bonnie and Clyde. So now everyone in the country can see for themselves exactly who it is that every cop in the country is looking for. And now millions of Americans can put faces to the names of the two young outlaws that they're secretly rooting for. Or maybe not so secretly. Mm. Those selfies would forever transform Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow from two-bit Texas hoods into mythic outlaws. But they would also end up being their undoing. At this point in our story, it is mid-April of 1933, and the clock is ticking down for Bonnie and Clyde. They have a little over 13 months to live. Tick, tick, tick. We will continue that countdown next week when we conclude the two-part series on Bonnie and Clyde. So, 
Say something nice about us on your podcast platform of choice. Don't forget. Yeah, give us a five star rating on Apple Podcast and write a comment so we can give you a shout out. Keep those emails coming. Just got some more emails this week with some cases. Okay, some good. Suggestions. Yes. We're going to add those to the list. We're going to keep doing it. I have so many questions. Maybe we'll get them answered. I'm going to try to answer as many of them as I can for you next week in part two. Are we done, everybody? We're done. Good night, everybody. <laughs>